Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we reran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the sixth Risk episode ever to appear in the world from December 15th of 2009. It's an episode we call We Were Young. If you want love, you gotta play your hand. Make her understand that you're a man. Come on, I need you for this one. Take a risk. Friends, I'm Kevin Allison, and if I can't convince you to take more risks, I hope to God some dude imitating Neil Diamond can. All right, it wasn't just some dude. That was the wonderful Alec Gross. And this, kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Today, we have a truly stellar lineup, two of the greats, Mike Daisy and Tom Shalhoub will be spinning the yarns. This is the episode we're calling We Were Young. So these are stories about youthful indiscretions, stuff we'd never do again, the most puerile of pursuits. And behind me right now, you're hearing one of the giants of funk today, Will Bernard. Great honor to have Will's music on the show. Go check him out at willbernard.com. Someone else good to have on the show, and by some strange coincidence, it's our first storyteller. See, there's this man named Brad Lawrence, and he's exactly the kind of charming bastard who would come up with the kind of story we'd call Nanu Nanu Manu. 
when I was 19, I ran with a kind of a rough crowd. This was kind of a collection of drug dealers and sort of the accompanying thugs that are always amongst drug dealers. And we have all sort of gathered around and sort of in this orbit of this guy named Dan. And Dan has a lot of money and none of us really know why Dan has a lot of money or where he got it. And we don't really care because Dan has a two-story house all to himself and he's got a lot of drugs. Dan always has a lot of people at this house, but the big shindig he's going to throw, he's going to have this Halloween party. And the Halloween party is like guaranteed to be just an enormous throwdown, like 300 people. And I am already, I'm, I'm like thinking about a costume, and the costume that I come up with to go to Dan's party is I'm going to go as a flasher. And going as a flasher entails wearing a trench coat and a pair of Chuck Taylors and nothing else. And so for a while, when I show up as the flasher, I am made the party greeter. Which means that as people kind of come in, my job is to stand there in the front door, open the trench coat and go, Happy Halloween! Anyway, the party continues to sort of grow in size, and pretty soon it's just a lot of people, and so many people that eventually it kind of spills out to the front yard. Dan's front lawn is just peppered with drunk 19-year-olds, of which I am one. And I'm standing out there in my you know trench coat and my Chuck Taylors, and I'm having a conversation with one of the kids who would eventually become a Harry Krishna. And we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, I guess the light and goodness that is Krishna. I don't know. During this conversation, at some point I hear this voice behind me yell loudly, Come on, motherfucker! Shoot me! And I turn to find Manu, this six-foot-four Indian dude who kind of had a penchant for, like, Metallica t-shirts and uh, out-of-date mullets. Um, a good friend. I find Manu sort of gesturing with kind of the come-on motion with his hands and yelling, Come on, motherfucker! Shoot me! at a Nissan Sentra parked in the street in front of Dan's house. And in the center, there's a sort of gaggle of kind of wannabe cut-rate gangsters and, you know, kind of these tracksuit-wearing dudes with, like, bad sort of vanilla ice fades. And the one in the driver's seat has kind of come up over the driver's side window and is pointing over the roof a 9 millimeter handgun right at Manu. And Manu's response to this is to encourage the guy to go ahead and shoot him if he has the balls. And from where I am at watching this, I am sort of off to Manu's left, just a little bit. Like, if this guy with the gun has, like, any kind of motor control issues or, like, you know, lazy eye, like, any kind of problem whatsoever, I am sort of next in line. Like, it's, you know, Manu and, like, but for bad aim, me. That's, you know, how it's gonna go. And Kyle sort of sees all this happening, the Krishna kid, and he stands up and he runs inside to get Dan. Um, Dan's response, logical response entirely, Dan grabs a shotgun, loads it, and proceeds to fly down the stairs, top speed, with the shotgun, pointed out in front of him, cocked and loaded. And I turn to see Dan coming out of the doorway, and I just see these two black barrels of the shotgun coming directly towards me, and I am now, in this moment, I am between the shotgun and the 9mm handgun, and what I realize is that when my mother comes to identify my body at the morgue, I will be wearing a trench coat 
and a pair of Chuck Taylor sneakers and nothing else. And the woman will have to stand there and say to the man, yes, this is my son. The guys in the Sentra see this shotgun, realize that they are massively outgunned. The guy ducks back into the driver's seat and they drive away. And as they drive away, Manu is standing in the yard going, where are you going? Thought you were going to shoot me. Come on, motherfuckers. Dan, he's satisfied. He unloads the chamber, goes back into the house and up the stairs. And Kyle sits back down on the stoop. And I proceed back up the stairs after Dan to go in and find the bag that I had brought to the party with me. And I dug out a pair of boxers. Risk. The possibility of suffering harm or loss. Danger. A factor, thing, element, or course involving uncertain danger. A hazard. The danger or probability of loss to an insurer. The chance of non-payment of a debt. Risk. I'll tell you, that Jordan Cooper sure knows how to read a goddamn dictionary. Now we are past the point in our program wherein anyone is named Manu, but we move into the world of another named Shilu. Tom Shilu is an ace. He's an old friend of mine, and we just plucked one word from his story to name it Slakeless. I felt a connection with Balloon Boy Dad, though, because he wanted to get a reality show. That's why he did it, to get on TV. Performers are like that. I think anyone, there's probably a lot of performers in the audience tonight, and they know, deep down, I know they might make fun of Balloon Dad, but they know about that ambition, that, that slakeless ambition that they have deep within them. They want to get a TV show. So when I heard that, that Balloon Dad wanted to get his own TV show, and that's why he broke the law, several laws, I was like, I know where that guy's coming from. Guerrilla Tactics, that was one of my... When I first got to New York, me and my friend Asif Mandvi, anyone know the actor Asif Mandvi? We moved to New York together. We worked down at Universal Studios in Florida. We were making $12.10 an hour, full-time actors. It was awesome. And we moved to New York together and we are like, we're going to break into this business, Guerrilla Tactics. And we did a thing called Knock. We went around and knocked on agents' doors. Anyone who's a performer knows, you go to an agent's door, it always has a thing on the door that says, leave headshots outside the door. Don't knock, no matter what. So we'd walk over the door and we would knock. It was like an improv game. When they opened the door, we had to think of something to say. And we had to bullshit them about why we were knocking on their door. And we usually came up with bad ideas. But it was guerrilla tactics. Um, I actually didn't have a headshot. Because when I got to New York City, I, I wanted to make it quick. You want to make it in show business, you want it now. You want it yesterday. Because you think if you wait around, you're gonna turn into one of those. I remember I took an acting class in Boston and there was someone in the class, we went around in a circle and talked about what, you know, what we did in our lives and everything like that, talked about ourselves. That you know how you waste that first acting class talking about nonsense. And someone was like, well, I'm 28 and I'm blah, blah, blah. And I was like, 28? I remember thinking, if I'm 28 and I'm still in acting class, I'm gonna kill myself. <laughs> That's what you think when you're young, you're cocky. Performers have that, we all have that. They pretend to be humble. They're like, oh, I'm so insecure. You're not insecure. You're trying to get your own TV show, stop it. 
but I didn't have headshots because they cost about $500 to get headshots. And so instead, I came up with guerrilla tactics. I wrote a letter to every agent and casting director in New York I, that you buy a thing called the Ross Reports at the newsstand. And, you, and I found out every, the address of every agent. I wrote them a letter and I FedExed them. It cost like $11. I FedExed every agent. I overnighted them because I thought, they'll open a FedEx. And the letter said the following. It said, Dear Sir or Madam, I have been asked by the producers of Saturday Night Live to forward my materials to them for an audition. I need a good New York agent for this task. Are you up for it? Tom Shalou. Okay, so that was about $1,000 down the drain right there. I thought Saturday Night Live, that's it. You know, I, th I had this weird idea. I was kind of improving. I thought, they'll get the letter, they'll call me in, they will get me the Saturday Night Live audition before I, they've even figured out that I'm totally bullshitting them. And uh, so that was never, I guess they don't, uh, they didn't call me. But I wanted to make it and I was waiting tables. And then I got an audition. There was a sketch comedy show. And I was like, I'm a comedian, I'm gonna get this audition. So I, I got in there, Guerrilla Tactics. I, I knocked on the door of the casting director and I got in and they were casting a multicultural sketch comedy show that was going to go head to head with Saturday Night Live. They were gonna compete with them on their own turf. And I was like, I am in, man, this is it. It was a multicultural show. And I was like, yeah, that's, I'm, you know, I can. I know what I can bring to the table there. See, Jim Carrey was just getting to be big. Jim Carrey was just getting to be like a movie star coming off of In Living Color. You remember the sketch comedy show? And now he was a movie star because he was the white guy on that black show and he really stood out. And I was like, I'm gonna be the white guy on this show on this multicultural show. So I went in the audition, I got the audition, I got the callback, I went to the callback and I got the show. They cast me in the show, it was called What's Up? What's Up? I think it was that, I don't know if it was even What's Up, I think it was Wa with the apostrophe S, What's Up? And then when I got into the show, it was now a union job, it was after scale, I was gonna make 630 bucks for the week, it was unbelievable. I was rolling in it. And I quit my waiting job. I'm like, I got a pilot! Screw you! I left the waiting table. You know, no more waiting tables for me. I got a pilot. I'm going to be the new Jim Carrey. And it was a multicultural show. It was. It was somebody from all different races, all different comedians. And they, were, they put us together. And the show was not yet sold. It was just a pilot right now. But they were going to sell it for syndication. That's good enough for me. I'll do that. And it was now the writing staff were sociologists and psychologists. And this show was funded by a former Iranian hostage named Moorhead Kennedy. I swear to God, he was an Iranian hostage. And he came back from Iran and he went on Nightline several times and he realized the power of television to change lives. Or else he was just really into being on TV. And then he created his own production company and he started trying to do TV projects and one of them was, what's up? And he was gonna teach people how to understand different cultures by comedy, by doing sketch comedy. So the writers were all sociologists. They needed us, the comedians, to make it funny. So they kind of put us in a room and they let us improvise around their ideas. And they were going to film this thing and then they were going to take it and cut it into a pilot and they were going to sell it for television. And so we were improving and things like that. I remember one of the first things we did, we sat around in a circle and we told the camera, the guy had a handheld camera, we had to tell of our first-hand experiences with prejudice. But they were compelling stories, and I'm just sitting, I'm listening, you know, I wasn't doing the think ahead, I was just like, oh, I was in the moment. Oh, 
Oh, black eye. Oh, yeah. Oh, Indian woman. Oh, no. And then the camera got to me. I remember the guys turning the camera on me, and I remember I was thinking, oh my god, I didn't even think of my story. And they put the lens right on me. And everyone's like staring at me, and the room gets really warm all of a sudden. And I got... So I just looked into the lens, and I was like, so far, no problems. <laughs> so the pilot didn't fly. I know you're I know you're surprised by that. What's up? I was not gonna be Jim Carrey. I had to go back to my waiting job. But on the last day, I actually had to skip the last day of the pilot because I had booked a TV commercial and this was gonna be big, I knew it. They had me walk out and they were doing what is called a demo where you go out and you shoot a commercial and then they try to sell it to the ad agency. And I was like, that's fine, I can do that. I'll work on personality. So I went out there and they had me walking around in Bryant Park and interviewing people for an insurance company. And I had to ask people questions about insurance. And I had a name, I was called Justin Case. That was my name. <laughs> Clever, right? And I was like, hello, Justin Case here. And I was kind of a detective on the beat. And I was like, oh, do you have insurance? And they're like, oh, no, I was talking to people about insurance. And we were bantering back and forth. And we were making them, I was making them laugh. And it was all fun. And I was Justin Case. Now, if this thing flew, forget about the pilot. This was going to make a lot of money. It was going to be a big insurance campaign. I was going to be able to really quit my waiting job. I was on my way to the top. So. I shoot the thing, and then they put it in the can, and then I went to get a copy of it, because you always get a copy so you can show people. Oh, it's my reel, it's my reel. I want to show you my copy. I want to show you my insurance commercial. So I went to the ad agency to pick up a copy of this thing on VHS, and they showed me, out of a courtesy, they showed me the campaign, which was awesome, and then they showed me the competing campaign, the one they were pitching with it. And I saw it, and I was like, so cocky. I walked out of there, I was like, oh my god, I have the campaign. I called up my commercial agent, I was like, Doug, it's in the can. We got this thing, baby. Get ready to negotiate. And he's like, well, Tom, you know, we never count out money in this business. You never know something until the deal is uh, done, right? And I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. I saw both campaigns that they're pitching, and it is not even a contest. Mine are really funny and light and quirky. It's, 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 the campaigns are down to two people. It's between me and a talking duck that says, Affleck! So when I see Bubble Dad, I feel for the man. Thanks a lot. That was Tom Shalou. You can find him at TomShalou.com. And behind me again is Will Bernard off his new album, Blue Plate Special. Now, coming up next, we have even more immaturity with a story in which Leslie Goshko suffers minor contusions about the hips. But first, let me say that if you enjoy our show, we need your help. We are determined to keep growing and improving, so pitch in, be a part of this. Donations of any amount are easily made in minutes by clicking on stuff at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. And remember, donations to Risk are officially tax-deductible. Now, I was talking about Leslie Goshko, who is adorable and who sometimes mails 
people, dead animals, and whose website is ohmygoshco.com. But did you know we call the story she's about to tell... In a jingle tangle. And I know you're thinking, what? Did, did you just say... In a jingle tangle. Well, you're damn right I did. And I'll say it again. In a jingle tangle. All right, enough of that. Here's Leslie. So my sister, who is four years older than me, she just ignored me like 99.9% of the time. Whenever she would come up to me and like agree to hang out or do something or play, I was so leery of it because it always turned out wrong and at my expense. If we agreed to play Barbies, the rule was I had to set it all up and get everything situated and then she would play with me, but then I had to agree not to talk to her for the rest of the day. Another time, she convinced me to clean out the entire shed in our backyard so we could have like a girl's playhouse and this was gonna be our club. So for hours and hours, I'm like sweeping out cobwebs and raccoon poop and all this stuff and I get it all done just in time for her and her friends to come by, go in, lock me out, and I had to watch them all having this little party in there. One day she came up to me and she was like, um, Les, I just want to say I'm really sorry for being a jerk and I want to make it up to you. And she pulls out this VHS tape and she runs over to the VCR, she puts it in, turns on the TV, and she's just like staring at the screen with rapt, crazed attention. And I'm looking at the screen, I'm looking at her and I'm like, I don't, I don't think we're seeing the same thing because she's getting really excited over this old woman with like leathery skin and a hippie skirt and these Charles Manson eyes and she's dancing with this tambourine and she goes, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be a tambourine duo and play for nursing homes and in front of the church on Sundays. And I just think, no, no, this is not, no, this is not what I wanna do. Like, But if this is what it costs, it's a small price to pay to hang out with my sister. And so she goes, good. Let's go get mom to get us some tambourines. My mom, who was extremely religious, she didn't like buying us like books or movies or toys that didn't have to do with God. So she was thrilled at the fact that she was gonna be buying us musical instruments to praise God. So she brings us to the music store and she drops $50 on premium calfskin tambourines. She's just elated at the fact that we're showing interest in church because the week before we couldn't even sit up straight and pay attention. Now we're like, we're, we're gonna praise God in front of everyone. After we come back home, my sister pops in the tape and Mrs. Manson pops up on the screen and we start just like mimicking her like every move for move, swirl for swirl, jingle and jangle. And my sister's just yelling, bigger, Les, you gotta be bigger. And I don't know how you're gonna miss like the chunky kid with the tambourine, but I, go, I get bigger. So we do it all week, these routines. And Saturday night comes and I'm in bed and I'm trying to think of ways to sabotage tomorrow because I just know this is going to be so embarrassing. The one that was going to cinch it was I was going to leave my tambourine at home and then, oops, I can't do it. And so we get in the car and I'm like, this one's going to work. And then out comes my sister trotting with my tambourine. Les, you forgot it. It's a good thing I saw it. And I, I feign, you know, thank you. And I take it. My mom took all the dread I had over going to church and just like shoved it in the gas tank and that made it like go into warp drive because we got there so fast and I was like, oh no, this is gonna be horrible. 
My mom played the piano every week, so she's sitting behind the piano and she's so proud for what's gonna happen. And my sister grabs my arm and she's like, okay, are you ready? And I wasn't, but I was like, I'm, I'm doing this. And we're standing there with our ribbon tambourines and our hippie skirts. And in that moment, I just pray. I was like, God, let this be a slow song. And the pastor, he takes his guitar pick and just strums like perfect tambourine playing music. All these tambourine moves had names like Heavenly Winds and God's Water and Revenge and Wrath. So as soon as he makes that first drum, we're off and we're doing it. And she's like, Heavenly Waters, go! And we start with like synchronized movements and twirls and our skirts are swishing. And I swear they only played fast songs that, that Sunday. I think it was probably just to see like how far we would go. And so we end up sitting down after praise and worship and we're just sweaty and tired and bruised from tambourine playing. And that's when I hear snickering and laughing and I turn around and the other kids are pointing at us and I'm just like, this is what I am dreading. And my sister just turns around. She goes, shut up, it's cool. And they do shut up and I was amazed, I was like, Holy cow. And I was also amazed because my sister's standing up for me. And if it took a tambourine team, I'm okay with that. So I was excited then for our tambourine team. I was like, this ended up okay, you know? And so Monday morning, I got my tambourine. I found my sister. I was like, it's time to practice. And she looks at me and she goes, um, yeah, I'm done with that now. I said, what do you what do you mean you're done uh, I'm done with that you know it's just like mm, I'm done and I was like damn it just damn for being back in this spot you know I'm back to standing outside of the clubhouse I helped make and I'm just so upset Sunday she left her tambourine and I, I was the one who brought it this week and I was like I got your tambourine just in case so we get to church and it's like deja vu walking in like what's gonna happen is she gonna suddenly you know pony up are we gonna be the tambourine duo we're supposed to be and I look at my sister and I say do you do you want to play with me and she just looks at me and says nope and she wouldn't pick up her tambourine and so they start playing the music and it's a perfectly fitted tambourine song of course and so I grab my tambourine and I walk up to the very 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 front of the church and I'm gonna do this whether she's there or not and I know that all I want to do is make my mom proud so I bust out some mean heavenly winds and some mean Abraham's son and some covenant and I swirl and I twirl and I whoop and jangle and I look over at my mom and she is just so happy and I was the one that got McDonald's after that, not my sister. So for a chunky kid, that's worth it. Trevor Jude Smith, helping us out with our spelling there. Always nice to hear what the robots are thinking. 
But in your mind's eye today, you've seen Brad Lawrence's junk and Tom Shalhoub's paleness and Leslie Goshko's bruises. Friends, it's high time we do a little mulling over Amy Dixon's womb. Amy is a cast member of the wonderfully absurd stage show, The Sitcom, produced here in New York by Richard Jones. And she's going to tell us all about baby love. My high school driver's ed teacher was Sister Therese Marie. In our driver's ed class, one of her most frequent statements was, 40% of teenagers get into a car accident within the first year of obtaining their driver's license. Of course, it only took me two weeks. I was with Jeff. He was my first kiss, my first boyfriend, and the first penis I touched. Anyway, we had this on-again, off-again relationship. And the reason we were on-again, off-again is because I'm sure he really wanted to have sex, but he couldn't commit long enough for me to feel comfortable, you know, to stay with him. I thought, you know, if we're going to have sex, we need to be in love and maybe go to prom. We got into the car accident at the very tail end of our date. I was just about to turn into the uh, driveway of his parents' home. And this car just came toward us and it barreled into us. When I got out of the car, I just was thinking, oh, geez, this is most likely my fault because I didn't remember seeing a car coming down the street. But when the cops arrived, they discovered that the other guy didn't have his driver's license, so they faulted him. The ambulance arrived and I told them that I had a stiff neck because I did, and good Catholics always tell the truth. They put me on a gurney, and I had this huge cage over my head and neck, and they wheeled me into the ambulance. Jeff told them he was fine, and he walked into an ambulance with just a nosebleed. We were both raced to Marymount Hospital. Marymount Hospital is a Catholic hospital, and in the front is this huge statue of the Virgin Mary in a water fountain, and there are, you know, like flowers and gardens. When we arrived, I knew that Jeff and his mom were two curtains down from me because I can hear them talking. And I was alone. My parents hadn't arrived yet. They weren't at the scene of the accident. So the first nurse came in and she asked the usual questions that a nurse asks when they're evaluating a patient in the emergency room, checked my blood pressure. But she also said that I had to go for an x-ray of my neck. So she asked me, well, when was your last period? And I told her something like, oh, July 18th. And she stopped and said, hmm, it's September 15th. Your period's a little late. Is it normally late? I said, no, no. And then she stopped and she said, is there any chance you're pregnant? And I kind of laughed to myself because, like, no, no, there's no chance that I'm pregnant. And then she got real serious and, and she said, are you sexually active? And it was at that point where I got really nervous because if I heard Jeff and his mom talking two curtains down, then they probably could hear me talk to this nurse. So I just kind of whispered, no, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't had sex. And she wasn't happy with that answer, and she just ran out of the curtains. So then another nurse came through the curtains, and she says, all right, Amy, it's fine. She puts her hand on my shoulder, and she's like, all right, we believe you. You're not pregnant, but we're going to put this heavy lead apron over your chest and abdomen so the baby's not harmed. And she wheeled me off to x-ray. 
Of course, as I was sitting there in the x-ray, I started to think, uh, well, my period was late. And these are healthcare professionals who work at a Catholic hospital. Clearly, they know what they're talking about. I wasn't stupid. I mean, they may have planted the seed, but I knew that. I mean, I didn't have sex, and I knew that I couldn't get pregnant that way or by touching a penis. But at age 16, I still believed in Catholic folklore, and there was one person in history who did become pregnant without sex. And she was standing right outside that hospital in statue form covered in flowers and fountain water. Well, as I sat there in the x-ray, I didn't want to stop it because if I stopped the x-ray, then they would have to get a blood test and that would keep me longer. And then my parents would wonder why I'm in there longer. They would think, oh, well, what's happening? The nurses would tell them and then they would know that maybe I had sex. Anyway, they did the x-ray and I didn't say a thing to anyone. And I was wheeled off back to my curtain and my parents had arrived. My neck was fine. When I got home, my father received a call from the insurance company saying that he got a huge check because the accident wasn't my fault and that he would get two cars out of it. So he instantly forgave me, which meant I couldn't possibly tell him of my fear. So I just waited and waited a few more days and thought, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll quit school. I'll get a part-time job. And then my period came and all was reset. Of course, Jeff did call me a few days later and in his voice, I heard that we were probably going to go on one of our breaks again but that was fine because at least I wasn't pregnant by the Lord. Take a chance, change. do it now. What's the race? Take a chance, change. do it now. What's the race? There's no race. Go on and love somebody. Love somebody. So say the elemental wizard, casting the kind of spell on us that goes by the name of Rhythm and Blues. Well, we have one more story for this hour. We Were Young episode, and it's a doozy. I cannot say enough about Mike Daisy. If you ever get a chance to see Mike tell stories live, make it a priority. You can find him at MikeDaisy.com. Here he is at the Risk Show in New York with his story, the words. When I was young, I was at a college. I was at a small liberal micro-ivy college. You know, the kind of college you go to, which then later in life, you become an artist, you end up in New York City and performing at a place like this. Small liberal micro-ivy college. You know, one of those bastions of privilege and uh, power. So I'm at one of those small liberal micro-ivy colleges, and it's the 90s, and I am a freshman at college. And I spent most of that uh, freshman year uh, uh, a drunk on coffee. I would drink enormous amounts of coffee, highly caffeinated, really dark, oily, sludge, bullshit coffee that kind of runs right through your body and strips out all the shitty dorm food you're eating and just shits it out your back end kind of coffee. You know, serious stuff. That I just coated the inside of my eyeballs with caffeine. I was fucking awake all the time because I was bored out of my mind. I was bored and somewhat suicidal, a little manic depressive. And... I spent most of that year drinking all this coffee and staying up all night in the library, the, 
library had this public area part of the library where everyone could just stay all night long and that's what I would do and I would drink coffee with my other fellow ingrates. We were people who were not happy to be at our small liberal microwave college. We weren't happy with the universe. We were misanthropes. I found other people like myself, people who hated life. And so we would drink together and mostly we would talk about libertarianism. <laughs> because at that age, when you are young and stupid and drinking too much coffee, libertarianism sounds great. It sounds fantastic. You're like, we don't need laws. We just need people to be just as together as I am, I say as I drink the 10th or 12th cup of coffee. We don't need advantages for others. Everyone is equal. <laughs> and I would drink some more coffee. That was really dumb. That was really fucking stupid. I am still stupid today. Remember that. So I'm drinking a whole bunch of coffee. I'm drinking a whole bunch of coffee, and uh, that spring, and every spring, there's, uh, there would always be an immense a drama that would afflict my small liberal microwave college. I think every college has things like this. They live in their bubble universes, and shit happens that only matters there. But it seems to matter so, so much at the time that it happens. And at my small liberal microwave college, what had happened was that there had been the senior art show, which as you know with all art, no one would give a shit about the senior art show except that one of the senior artists had created an artwork which was a picture of the Rodney King beating in progress. And then underneath it, it had a title and the title was, Do You Want Fries With That? Which is actually just, you know, I mean if you ask them, just a shitty piece of shitty art. It's just like, I'll take an image that's in the public consciousness and then I'll take uh, uh, something people say in advertising and I'll put them together to comment on, I don't know, but it's provocative. And it was. And this, this campus, you know, filled as it was with exclusively white people. Just like many, many, like the driven fucking snow in Maine where it was. Filled with white people went crazy because, of course, this was deeply, deeply offensive. And the uh, the the league of um, the, the league of students, some, one of the many organizations with many uh, alphabetical letters tied together, decided to condemn this as they often do. But they took it a step further and they went around the campus and they tore down all the posters that had this image on them, promoting the senior art show. And so the night that it happened, I was in the street of the library, drinking all this coffee. And it was like two or three in the morning, and I was really worked up. And I was holding forth, as people who are into libertarianism and coffee will do. And I was saying, damn it, it's freedom of speech. It's fucking freedom of speech. People should be able to say what they You can't just tear down their fucking push. You respond to speech with more speech. If you don't like what people saying, you say it more and you say it more loudly. God damn it, my friend Doug, good guy, much more worldly than me at the time, Doug, who was from DC, was saying, dude, I hear what you're saying, but you don't understand. You don't understand about Rodney King. You don't understand, like, the black experience. I come from DC, like, seriously. You don't understand. And I had drank nine cups of coffee. And I was like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Maybe you don't understand. I am 18 years old, motherfucker. I am going out to get a liberal arts degree in aesthetics which is the philosophical study of beauty and art, motherfucker. I understand everything in the universe. I don't have any room for cultural viewpoints. I fucking know this is wrong. And he kept saying, like, you can't understand. And I was so young and so ignorant. I was like, oh, I understand. I understand. And it became like 
all about this. I had to prove that I understood. I said, I'll show you. I'll show you all! Which never ends well. <laughs> because there was a computer lab there in the street of the library, right there, waiting up 24 hours, always open, as if ready for an idiot like me to take advantage of it. And I walked in there, and I designed my own poster. And my poster, I just uh, opened up a Word document. I just started typing every racial epithet I could think of until I built a whole background. And then I clipped out a section in the middle, and I wrote, do these words offend you? If they do, you should not tear down this poster. Instead, you should respond by talking to me, the person who put up the poster. And then I put Mike Daisy, I listed my address, my email address, my phone number. Yeah, I'll show you what I'll do. And then I printed 400 copies of that motherfucker. Because that's the advantage of laser printers and stupidity, right? It just can't be stopped. I like print and like, and I was like, <laughs> you'll all understand. And then I took the 400 copies. And at this point, Doug has gone to bed. Doug, he's like, he's passed out because he's fucking sensible, not me. I was like, Rasputin. I took those 400 copies. I started at one end of the tiny fucking campus. I went all the way across, taping to everything. There were so many more of these than there ever were of the goddamn student art show. I take them to everything. When I saw my handwork the next day, there were some sections I was so deliriously tired as dawn was coming up that I would tape up like 20 of them all in one spot just to use up my remaining stock. And then I wandered back to my dorm room and I collapsed in my bed, exhausted but knowing I was right. And I was woken up a few hours later <laughs> by a sound. And the sound was <laughs> And soon there was another sound because people were calling my dorm phone, which I had listed, and the hallway phone. People were calling every phone to get me. And they woke me up out of the slumber as people started knocking on the doors because people had received my message. And as I had asked them to respond, they were. And today in the 21st century, it seems so smart and clever, you know? We, we're all used to the idea, oh, I posted something weird on a chat board. It means something more when you post it in the actual physical world. You don't think that's true, but it really is. You'd be amazed how many eyeballs you capture when you just cover the whole place with racial epithets. <laughs> and before long, the deans let me know that they wanted to meet with me. And I went in to meet with them, and we had a very strange meeting, because, you know, they were like, why did you do this? And I would say, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, and would just rear up out of me. I, I, and they'd be like, but why did you, why did you do that? Right of freedom of speech! Because the truth was, because I'm insane. Because I'm insane and an idealist and I had too much goddamn coffee. But you know, once you've taken a position, you can't back down. And boy, every time I went to lunch or dinner, everybody in school felt like, hey, you're that guy. Let's talk about social, and you know that. And so I'd sit down and I would explain, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, and I would make the argument, and more and more people argued with me who 
made very compelling counter-arguments, and I started to feel pretty stupid about the whole fucking thing, but it was too late, because there was gonna be a school-wide symposium about my posters, and I was urged to attend. In fact, on the day of the symposium, they sent people to my dorm room to help ensure that I would attend. And so I went to the symposium. It was in the chapel, which is the biggest space that can hold everyone. And it seemed like everyone in the fucking school had come. Lots and lots of students I recognized and professors. Like all the professors. And a bunch of them were wearing their hoods, you know? Like it's Hogwarts. I don't know why the fuck they were wearing their hoods. And I got there. And there were two chairs. The way they had staged it was beautiful. Lenny Riefenstahl would have been proud. There were two chairs up on the stage with bright light on them. One chair for the maker of the original poster and one chair for me. The maker of the original poster did not show up. And I will never forgive him for this. But it's a good lesson, isn't it? Because even if you think you're standing up for a higher ideal, you'll often just have to fucking stand alone, no matter how dumb your ideal is. So I had to go up in front of everyone. And they, they set the format, and the format was, we're gonna let people talk, as many people as want to talk to you, and when they have all spoken, you can respond. <laughs> so I sat down, and they began to speak, one person after another with no time limit, <laughs> speaking, and in a very heartfelt way about how they felt about these epithets, these words that I had tossed around, like grenades. They talked about hiding behind the shield of free speech, how I was a coward and a fool, and I listened to them, and some of them seemed ridiculous to me, and some of them were deeply moving. Some of them spoke to me about how those words had affected them in their lives, and you could feel the truth underneath the words and it dug in it hurt because i was at this school on a scholarship and i had no money and i was familiar if not with the racism i knew the classism backward and forward yeah. and it hurt it hurt to think that i had done this even then even as thick-skulled as i was and they spoke for almost two hours and they got to the end and the dean of the college took the microphone and said, Michael, now, if you'd like to respond to what you've heard today, if there's anything you'd like to say, if you'd like to apologize, now would be the time. And they gave me the microphone, and I stood up in front of them, and I told the truth. I said, hello, everyone. I would like to apologize. But I can't apologize because freedom of speech, freedom of freedom of speech! Ah! And all the shit just started pouring out of my mouth uncontrollably, an uncontrollable stream. It haunted me the rest of my college career. 
as those things will. Your words will. They follow you. I uh, had certain professors who simply didn't want me in their classes, and I understood that. But at the same time, it was valuable to have gone through it early, to have seen that words have consequences, to stand behind something, whether you continue to believe in it or not. That act, that act shows you how powerful it can be to speak for something. And it did not change me. Seeing other people moving to New York, living with many different races and kinds of people, that changed me. That thing that happened at the school didn't change me. The only thing that changed from that is I learned on a deep level that after nightfall, I only have decaffeinated coffee. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, friends, please do tell somebody about our podcast. Word of mouth means the world to us. And tell us what you think of this show. What do you like? What could you live without? In what other directions could you see us possibly going? We love hearing from you. Write to Kevin at risk-show.com. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cadiz. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. More podcast episodes every other Tuesday. And remember what the French say about risk. There is more than one donkey at the fair called Martin... you ever get a chance to see Mike tell stories live, make it a priority. You can find him at Mac...